I want you to imagine at your place of work going to the break room, and as you're getting some coffee, you glance up at the TV where the news reports the progress on the 16-story Islamic Center and Mosque planned for Lower Manhattan, just two blocks north of where the World Trade Center once stood. Reporters are commenting on the pros and the cons of the project, and yes, of course, it's legal, but is it proper? Yes, yes, it's constitutionally protected, but is it wise? Is it discreet? Is it sensitive? And for a moment there, you're just transfixed on that TV. For a moment, you've forgotten that you are in the break room. For a moment, it's like you are in Manhattan. You're locked into the story. You are feeling the story. You're there for a moment. Suddenly, a voice breaks into your world, bringing you back from Manhattan into the break room. It's your colleague's voice. Your colleague whose name is Ahmad. Ahmad happens to be Muslim. Ahmad asks you this question. What do you think of all this? What do you think of Islam? It's not a theoretical question. It's not an academic question posed by TV talking heads doing point, counterpoint, ping pong. This is Ahmad, your colleague. He's a hard worker. He pays his taxes. He's got a family. They homeschool. They're part of a homeschool that uses church facilities during the week. And they happen to adhere to a different faith. Now, what are you going to say? Keep in mind now that you are a Christ follower. Keep in mind that you are an heir of God and co-heir of Christ, with Christ. Keep in mind that your primary identity is being in Christ. What are you going to say? You just came for coffee. (laughs) But without warning, you've been plunged into a dialogue, invited to a conversation that is very personal and very emotional. And you're trying to figure out at point-blank range how you can be the presence of Jesus Christ in that moment. What are you going to say? Well, just before you say something, the boss walks in the break room and sees the TV turned on and sees the two of you just standing there and just before the boss grows his, is this what we pay you for, look on his face, you wisely reply, Ahmad, why don't we talk about this after work? And this morning, I want to just walk us through what that conversation might look like. And let me just say that 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 very reply which you made right there in the break room in front of your boss, Enamad, shows wisdom and discernment in in two two important ways. First, First, you're not getting paid at work to carry on religious dialogues, okay? You're not. I, however, am. So, 
Get your own church, right? <laughs> but secondly, your reply shows awareness, your awareness. It reveals your awareness that concerning Christianity and Islam, there's not one confrontation going on, but four. Four. And let me explain. In our world today, there's two Christianities. You're aware of that, aren't you? There's, two, there's biblical Christianity. There's the Christ-centered, cross-driven, gospel-saturated Christianity. There's the biblical Christianity that says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, Jesus Christ. There's the Christianity of the, the parable of the lost son. There's the Christianity that, that we hold to. That's this Christianity, biblical Christianity, that drives us to be a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. That's the Christianity that we're about here. Then there's Western Christianity. Right? Materialistic. That there is a 2010 Advent calendar. That's what that is. Each day, something opens. They've only made one. It costs a million dollars. If you can afford that Advent calendar, I want to see you after church. Western Christianity, hollow, cultural, man-centered accommodation to relativism, subjectivism, individualism, consumer-driven, enlightenment-driven spinelessness. Biblical Christianity, Western Christianity. Against these, there are two Islams. Two Islams. There's, there's Quranic Islam, which happens to be the Islam that our colleague Ahmad and his family observes as he strives his best to follow this religion of peace and divine justice. Quranic Islam. And then there's radical or terrorist Islam. And this is the Islam of, of murderers, and assassins, they are the Osama bin Ladens, the Al-Qaeda networks, whose goal is to bring their twisted vision of a kingdom to light through bloodshed. Two Christianities, two Islams, and there's four confrontations or four wars going on. Now, in the war between biblical Christianity and terrorist Islam... I can tell you beyond doubt, beyond any doubt whatsoever, that biblical Christianity will win this war because love always conquers hate. Always. 
in the war between Western Christianity and Quranic Islam. I can tell you that I know this without a doubt, that Quranic Islam will win. Because that is a war between conviction and relativism, honor and shamelessness. And I tell you, Quranic Islam is already winning this in Europe because, you see, self-sacrifice always conquers self-indulgence, always. And then there's the war between Western Christianity and radical or terrorist Islam. And I have absolutely no idea who's going to win that war. Only God knows. And this leaves us with biblical Christianity and Quranic Islam, which, which you might call a confrontation or you might call a spirited conversation or dialogue or discussion that we want to have with our friend Ahmad, and that's where we're going today. I want to talk about how we can do that. I want to talk about how we can walk alongside the Ahmads in our lives and find some common ground. In fact, that's what I want to talk about first. I want to, I want to, I want to see how we can explore some thoughtful and courteous engagement Attempting to find some common ground where we travel as far as we possibly can along this path of common ground with someone like Ahmad, knowing, knowing that somewhere on this path there's going to be a critical junction, a fork in the road. So I want to talk about common ground and critical junction with our friend Ahmad. So after work... After work, you and Ahmad go to Starbucks, and you ask him, you ask, Ahmad, you know, before I answer your questions that you asked earlier in the break room, I think, Ahmad, I'd like to learn a little more about your faith. Teach me about Islam. Teach me about Islam. And let me just say that by doing just that, by asking that question, you have learned the people skills of a very wise 12-year-old. Don't you remember Luke chapter 2, verse 46? After three days, they, Mary and Joseph, found him, Jesus, in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, and look, look what that says, listening to them and asking them questions. Listening and asking. And when we listen and when we ask, friends, that's when we learn. We learn. When we listen and when we ask, we learn that not every Muslim is a terrorist. When we listen and when we learn, we, we realize that, that Muslims, Muslims in Champaign County, I mean, they want a good education and they want a good job and a safe place for their family. When we listen and when we ask questions, we, we can learn that they can be partners in a democratic republic. When we listen and when we ask questions, we learn that most Muslims don't have the Quran memorized by the time they're three years old, and, and, and some of them don't even fast during Ramadan, and, and, and most may not even know why they believe what they believe, just like many Christians. 
And when we listen and when we ask questions, we learn that Islam is very diverse. And Arab Islam differs significantly from, from Islam in Indonesia, which happens to be the largest Muslim country in the world. And, and, and this differs from Islam in North Africa and Islam in North America. And, and, and when we listen and when we ask questions, we learn that you're, you're more likely to meet a nominal Muslim much like you're likely to meet a nominal Christian in Champaign-Urbana, listening and asking questions just like Jesus. And so you do. And Ahmad gives you a 10-minute version of his faith. Ahmad tells you how the God of Islam is first and foremost the God who creates. Islam has an unmistakable doctrine of creation. There's no confusion between the creator and the creation in Islam. And frankly, after meeting a Buddhist or, or someone from Hinduism, you find it quite a relief talking to a Muslim. And you learn, you learn that there is a, there is no, I mean, there is a clear distinction, a clear boundary between creator, creation, designer, design, and that doctrine, that truth helps you appreciate the, the sanctity of life, which Muslims share in opposing abortion. That designer design doctrine helps you appreciate, you know, why they honor God ordained human sexuality in opposing homosexualism. I mean, biblical Christianity can agree with that. And then you learn as Ahmad continues to teach you how in Islam. God is one. The, the Quran says this. There is no God but God. Our God and your God is one. And unto him we surrender. We learn that the word Islam means surrender. And again, we can nod our heads because as Christians we believe Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 which says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and to a degree we, we share with Islam the oneness of God. And at the same time we are led to ask Questions like, well, what kind of oneness are we talking about? Just a mathematical kind of oneness? Or can we think of a complex unity like the oneness of an atom or the kind of unity that creates one flesh in marriage? And then Ahmad continues and he begins to talk about how God rules and how God is in complete control of this world because God is sovereign. And of course, you know, we can nod our heads to that and at the same time be wondering, well, okay, how, how though does God exercise his rule? How does God's kingdom advance? What's the nature of his kingdom? And Ahmad continues when he teaches you how God reveals, how Allah of Islam reveals. And of course, this leads to the question, well, what does God reveal? In Quranic Islam, Ahmad explains how, how God only reveals his will. He never reveals himself. Muslims simply get the message from the messenger, Muhammad. But Muslims are never privy to the author of the message. Islam uh, you know, fiercely asserts the hiddenness of God. And, and again, while Ahmad is telling you this, you can't help but remember John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 
you can't help but remember something Jesus himself said. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Biblical Christianity teaches that God not only reveals his will, he reveals himself. And then Ahmad continues talking to you about how God loves, and, and this is surprising because you know, many Christians don't know that at the same time. Just this nagging question in the back of our minds are wondering, well, whom does God love? And, and the Quran declares that there are those that Allah loves and those that Allah does not love. And the New Testament says in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Ahmad goes on talking about how God judges. And both Christians and Muslims believe that there's going to be a day of judgment, a day where God will right all that is wrong in this world. And, And we will either look forward to this day or we will dread it. And at the same time, in the back of our heads, we're wondering, okay, well, on what basis does God judge? On what basis? And then finally, Ahmad tells how, in Islam, God forgives. And we wonder, well, okay, well, whom does God forgive? And and how does God forgive? Seven points of agreement, seven points of agreement about God where both Christians and Muslims can walk together on common ground. And what we find as we walk together on this common ground is is, it's not whether we agree that the one God creates and reveals and loves and rules and judges and forgives. The issue is how. How does he create? How does he love? How does he rule? How does he judge? How does he forgive? And I guess what I want to encourage is is simply this, church family. Be willing to take this journey. Be willing to walk slowly and casually through some common ground. Having coffee, listening, asking questions, and developing a relationship. And just because you don't agree on how God forgives doesn't mean you can't ask Ahmad to get the mail for you while you're on vacation. I guess what I'm asking is for us to consider what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially, get this, in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. That's how I want us to relate to Ahmad in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. Paul says, we've done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. The safety of that kind of a relationship and friendship will help you recognize and acknowledge, acknowledge and appreciate the common ground while at the same time realizing that there is a critical junction. There is a fork in the road between these two faiths which is where we are now. So let's talk about some of these issues pertaining to the critical junction. Starting with the Trinity. 
the oneness of God. Whereas Islam would teach the unity and singularity of God, one God, one person, biblical Christianity teaches that we worship an amazing God who is one in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this is a very important point to make. Uh, And if a Muslim were to ask you, do you believe in the triune God? Don't say yes. Don't. Say this instead. Say, how do you mean triune? See, see, we've got to get our definitions down. Because you might get a, a Muslim who would quote from the Quran, Surah 5, verse 116, and behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, did you say to men, worship me and my mother as gods in disregard of Allah? See? You see? See, some, some Muslims think that when we say that we worship the Trinity, it's Father, Son, and Holy Mother. But that's not, that's not biblical Christianity. And at that time, in the time of the writing of, of the Quran, some Christians were grossly mistaken as to the status of Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. You see, Muslims claim that when we talk about the triune God, mathematically they're thinking one plus one plus one equals three. What? Discussion closed. Yes, but Christians insist that's the wrong way to think about the Trinity. It's not one plus one plus one. One times one. Times one equals one. One to the third power. One X equals three Y. And yes, yes, this is a mystery. But it's also a a mystery that tells us why God created and who God is. Because you see, in Quranic Islam, Allah must create someone in order to love someone, but not in biblical Christianity and biblical Christianity teaches that, that through all eternity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in perfect unity of love, sharing love, giving love, perfect community of, of one God, three persons, and the purpose of creation. In Christianity, God did not create because he was lonely, but because he's a sharing, giving God. And yes, the Trinity... <laughs> is a mystery, but it's not a contradiction. That's why I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if Christianity were something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. So there's an irreconcilable difference between the Quranic Islamic view of God, Allah, and biblical Christianity's one God in three persons. And this leads us to the critical juncture about Jesus, who in Islam is viewed as a prophet, a remarkable human being, even born of a virgin, and whose mission was to reform Israel and call Israel back to the law and prophets. Biblical Christianity fiercely asserts that Jesus is divine. He is God in the flesh. He's not a man who became God, but God who appeared in a body, the fullest and final revelation of the Almighty. 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus. This is irreconcilable between Christianity and Islam, which leads us to the cross. The cross. Hebrews 1.3 inferred that when the Hebrew writer talked about providing purification for sins. But regarding the cross, there's something irreconcilable between Christianity and Islam. And, and on one level, it's historic because Islam claims that Jesus, in fact, did not die on a Roman cross. That God, in some way, substituted someone else. And though it appeared to be Jesus, it wasn't. And therefore, there was no resurrection. Quranic Islam asserts this. Biblical Christianity asserts. And the historical record, both in and out of the Bible, attest that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, crucified. It's a fact of history. Now, both perspectives cannot be true. They're irreconcilable. Furthermore, theologically, Islam would teach that the cross is blasphemous because the notion that God would put on human flesh and then die a slave's death on a Roman instrument of torture or execution, that's, that's unthinkable. In Islam, Allah grants forgiveness simply by decree. In Islam, in essence, Allah says to whomever Allah wants... Oh, that's okay, never mind. But in biblical Christianity, the cross is not something blasphemous. Rather, it's the greatest showcase of God's love ever displayed for his rebellious creation. I mean, you see, how, how we see the cross tells us how we see sin. In Islam, sin is thought of as weakness or a failing. But biblical Christianity asserts something so much deeper about sin, that sin is in the heart. Sin is, sin is, is, an, is an evil of rebelliousness and insurrection against the holiness of God. Sin is about something corrupt and depraved inside my soul, inside my heart, where I try to take the seat reserved solely for the Almighty. And therefore, biblical Christianity declares that forgiveness can only occur through suffering. And that's why 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins, my sin, your sin, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Two, two very very different views that, will not, that cannot be reconciled. And as a, as a result, reconciliation to God is by two fundamentally and irreconcilably different ways. In Islam, there is no assurance of reconciliation. Muslims may appeal to God's mercy 
And the hope of heaven rests fundamentally on, on personal obedience to God in the hope that our good deeds will somehow make up for our bad deeds. And the best hope that a Muslim can have for assurance is a, is a maybe or a we'll see or we, I won't know till I get there. And if you've, had, if you've had deep conversations with someone from a Quranic Islamic background, you'll get, you'll get reactions ranging from, well, that's just... That kind of no assurance drives me to even try harder. Two, total fear and total dread at the thought of dying. Biblical Christianity, though, teaches that the grace of God crowns everything, everything. Guilty human beings are reconciled to their creator by the loving sacrifice that God himself provided through Jesus' death on the cross. And we are therefore empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in a way that we would not, that we would otherwise just not choose. That we would, to live in a way that we wouldn't be able to choose. And our assurance is based on the merit of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what we're beginning to find out that in this, in this confrontation between biblical Christianity and Quranic Islam, it's really not about me out debating Ahmad and thus conquering his faith, but rather it's about me declaring with confidence the grace and love that there is one who has conquered death and Satan and hell. He did it, not me. And when that declaration is made with a sincere heart and a clean conscience out of love for the person sitting across from the coffee table from you, when that declaration is made, I'm telling you, it is powerful and it can change lives. Uh, Fabiti Aniaboli says, perhaps the biggest myth is that Muslims do not convert he says that is simply not true. Many, many Muslims are saved by God's sovereign grace through faith in Christ all the time. And they pay significant costs, losing family and friends and sometime, sometimes their jobs. And then he says we should be ready to help them and pay the costs. We should be ready to help them pay the costs of following our Lord. And you know what? Thabiti would know what he's talking about because he used to be Muslim. And the gospel of Jesus Christ changed his life. And now he's a pastor. Walking along in friendship, some common ground. Realizing that, yes, there is a critical juncture. There's, a crit there's differences. Let's not pretend there's not differences. Come on. Let's be able to articulate those differences and not be afraid of sharing the good news that can change eternal destinies. I'm just wondering here. I'm just wondering if Ahmad is in this room right here and right now. I'm wondering. And you, you, you may be thinking, well, no, 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 I'm not Muslim. 
well, you know what? Last week we talked about being a, you know, a Christian atheist or a practical atheist. We talked about that. I wonder if there's any practical Muslims in here right now. You may not have ever read the Quran, or you may not even believe the five pillars or know the five pillars or ever fasted at all during Ramadan, but you may be a practical Muslim because deep down inside, you've got a checklist mentality about religion. And your checklist is, I'm going to come here at 1045, put in my 70 minutes, and then move on. And what you have is not biblical Christianity. What you have is religion. Religion says that if we obey God, God will love us. The gospel says that it is because God has loved us through Jesus we can obey. Religion says that this world is filled with good people and bad people. The gospel says that this world is filled with bad people who are either repentant or unrepentant. Religion says that you should trust in what you do as a good moral person. The gospel says that you should trust in the perfectly sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and truly moral person who will ever live. Religion says it's all about what I have to do. The gospel says it's all about what I get to do. Religion sees hardship in life as punishment from God. The gospel sees hardship in life as a sanctifying affliction that reminds me of Jesus' suffering and is used by God in love to make us more like Jesus. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion leads to an uncertainty about my standing before God because I never know if I've done enough to please him. The gospel leads to a certainty about my standing before God because of the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ on behalf of me on that cross. Religion will either end in pride because I think I'm better than other people or despair because I continually fall short of God's commands. But the gospel ends in humble and confident joy because of the power of Jesus at work for me, in me, through me, and sometimes in spite of me. So, Ahmad, if you're here today, I would just ask you, plead with you, in the name of the crucified, buried, and resurrected one, leave religion leave religion and enter into the mercy of the merciful one, Jesus.